0: Section 18 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 8, Great Rulers, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Peter the Great, Part 1 A.D. 1672-1725 to His Services to Russia If I were called upon to name the man who, since Charlemagne, has rendered the greatest services to his country, I should select Peter the Great. I do not say that he is one of the most interesting characters that has shown in the noble constellations of illustrious benefactors whom Europe has produced. Far otherwise, his career is not so interesting to us as that of Hildebrand, or Elizabeth, or Cromwell, or Richelieu, or Gustavus Adolphus, or William Third or Louis Fourteenth, or Frederick Second, or others I might mention. I have simply to show an enlightened barbarian toiling for civilization, a sort of Hercules cleansing Augean nobles and killing Nemean lions, a man whose labors were prodigious, a very extraordinary man stained by crimes and cruelties, yet laboring with a sort of inspired enthusiasm to raise his country from an abyss of ignorance and brutality. It would be difficult to find a more hard-hearted despot, and yet a more patriotic sovereign, To me, he looms up, even more than Richelieu, as an instrument of divine providence. His character appears in a double light, as benefactor and as tyrant, in order to carry out ends which he deemed useful to his country, and which, we are constrained to admit, did wonderfully contribute to its elevation and political importance. Peter the Great entered upon his inheritance as absolute sovereign of Russia when it was an inland and even isolated state hemmed in and girt about by hostile powers, without access to seas. A vast country indeed, but without a regular standing army on which he could rely, or even a navy, however small. This country was semi-barbarous, more Asiatic than European, occupied by mongrel tribes, living amid snow and morasses and forests, without education or knowledge of European arts. He left this country after a turbulent reign, with seaports on the Baltic and the Black Seas, with a large and powerfully disciplined army, partially redeemed from barbarism, no longer isolated or unimportant, but a political power which the nations had caused to fear and which, from the policy he bequeathed, has been increasing in resources from his time to ours. Today, Russia stands out as a first-class power with the largest army in the world, a menace to Germany, a rival of Great Britain in the extension of conquests to the east, threatening to seize Turkey and control the Black Sea, and even to take possession of Oriental empires which extend to the Pacific Ocean. Nobody doubts or questions that the rise of Russia to its present proud and threatening position is chiefly owing to the genius and policy of Peter the Great. Peter was a descendant of a patriarch of the Greek church in Russia whose name was Romanov and who was his great-grandfather. His grandfather married a near relative of the Tsar and succeeded him by election. His father, Alexis, was an able man and made war on the Turks. Peter was a child when his father died, and his half-brother, Theodore, became the Tsar. But Theodore reigned only a short time, and Peter succeeded him at the age of 10, 1682, the government remaining in the hands of his half-sister Sophia, a woman of great ability and intelligence, but intriguing and unscrupulous. She was aided by Prince Galitsyn, the ablest statesman of Russia, who held the great office of Chancellor. This prince, it would seem, with the aid of the general of the Streltsy, the ancient imperial guards, and the cabals of Sofia, conspired against the life of Peter, then seventeen years of age, inasmuch as he began to manifest extraordinary abilities and a will of his own. But the young Hercules strangled the serpent, sent Galitzin to Siberia, confined his sister Sophia in a convent for the rest of her days, and assumed the reins of government himself, although a mere youth, in conjunction with his brother John. That which characterized him was a remarkable precocity, greater than that of anybody of whom I have read. At eighteen he was a man, with a fine physical development and great beauty of form, and entered upon absolute and undisputed power as Tsar of Muscovy. In the years of his regency, when the government was in the hands of his half-sister, he did not give promise of those remarkable abilities and that life of self-control which afterwards marked his career. In his earlier youth he had been surrounded with seductive pleasures, as Louis Fourteenth had been by the queen regent, with a view to control him not oppose him, and he yielded to these pleasures, and is said to have been a very dissipated young man, with his education neglected. But he no sooner got rid of his sister and her advisor, Galitzin, than he seemed to comprehend at once for what he was raised up. The vast responsibilities of his position pressed upon his mind, to civilize his country, to make it politically powerful, to raise it in the scale of nations, to labor for its good rather than for his own private pleasure, seems to have animated his existence. And this aim he pursued from first to last like a giant of destiny, without any regard to losses or humiliations or defeats or obstacles chance or destiny or providence threw in his path the very person whom he needed as a teacher and a mentor a young gentleman from geneva whom historians love to call an adventurer but who occupied the post of private secretary to the danish minister aristocratic pedants call everybody an adventurer who makes his fortune by his genius and his accomplishments they called thomas becket an adventurer in the time of henry the second and thomas cromwell in the reign of henry the eighth The young secretary to the Danish minister seems to have been a man of remarkable ability, insight and powers of fascination, based on his intelligence and on knowledge acquired in the first instance in a mercantile house, as was the success of Thomas Cromwell and Alexander Hamilton. It was from this young man whose name was Lefort, whom Peter casually met at dinner at the house of the Danish envoy, that he was made acquainted with the superior discipline of the troops of France and Germany and the mercantile greatness of Holland and England—the two things which he was most anxious to understand, since, as he believed, on the discipline of an army and the efficiency of a navy, the political greatness of his country must rest. A disciplined army would render secure the throne of absolutism, and an efficient navy would open and protect his ports for the encouragement of commerce, one of the great sources of national wealth. Without commerce and free intercourse with other countries, no nation could get money, and without money, even an absolute monarch could not reign as he would. So these two young men took counsel together, and the conviction was settled in the minds of each that there could be no military discipline and no efficient military power so long as the Streltsi, those antiquated and turbulent old guards, could depose and set up monarchs. They settled it, and with the enthusiasm of young men, that before they could get rid of these dangerous troops, only fit for oriental or barbaric fighting, they must create a regiment after their own liking large enough to form the nucleus of a real European army, and yet not large enough to excite jealousy. For Sophia was then still regent, and the youthful Peter was supposed to be merely amusing himself. The Swiss adventurer, one of the most enlightened men of his age and full of genius, became colonel of this regiment. And Peter, not thinking he knew anything about true military tactics and wishing to learn, and not too proud to learn, being born with disdain of conventionalities and precedents, entered the regiment as a drummer, in sight of his own subjects, who perhaps looked upon the act as a royal freak, even as Nero practiced fiddling and commodus archery before the Roman people. From drummer he rose to the rank of corporal, and from corporal to sergeant, and so on through all the grades. That is the way Peter began, as all great men begin at the foot of the ladder. For great as it was to be born a prince, it was greater to learn how to be a general. In this fantastic conduct we see three things, a remarkable sagacity in detecting the genius of Laforte, a masterly power over his own will and a willingness to learn anything from anybody able and willing to teach him. Even as a rich and bright young lady, now and then, when about to assume the superintendence of a great household, condescends to study some of the details of a kitchen, those domestic arts on which depends something of that happiness which is the end and aim of married life. Many a promising domestic hearth is wrecked, such is the weakness of human nature, by the ignorance or disdain of humble acquirements, or what seem humble to fortunate women, and yet which are really steps to a proud ascendancy. We trace the ambition of Peter for commercial and maritime greatness also to a very humble beginning. Whether it was a youthful sport, subsequently directed into a great enterprise, or the plotting intention to create a navy and open seaports under his own superintendence, it would be difficult to settle. We may call this beginning a decree of providence, an inspiration of genius or a passion for sailing a boat. The end was the same as it came about, the entrance of Russia into the family of European states. It would seem that one day, by chance, Peter's attention was directed to a little boat laid up on the banks of a canal which ran through his pleasure grounds. It had been built by a Dutch carpenter for the amusement of his father. The boat had a keel, a new thing to him, and attracted his curiosity. Lafort fort explained to him that it was constructed to sail against the wind. So the carpenter was summoned with orders to rig the boat and sail it on the Moskva, the river which runs through Moscow. Peter was delighted, and he soon learned to manage it himself. Then a yacht was built, manned by two men, and it was the delight of Peter to take the helm himself. Shortly, five other vessels were built to navigate Lake Pipus, and the ambition of Peter was not satisfied until a still larger vessel was procured at Archangel, in which he sailed on a cruise upon the frozen ocean. His taste for navigation became a passion, and once again he embarked on the frozen ocean in a ship, determined to go through all the gradations of a sailor's life as he began as a drummer in Lafort's regiment, so he first served as a common drudge who swept the cabin in a Dutch vessel. Then he rose to the rank of a servant who kept up the fire and lighted the pipe of the Dutch skipper. Then he was advanced to the duty of unfurling and furling the sails, and so on until he mastered the details of a sailor's life. Why did he condescend to these mean details? The ambition was planted in him to build a navy under his own superintendence. Wherefore, a navy, when he had no seaports? But he meant to have seaports. He especially needed a fleet on the Volga to keep the Turks and Tartars in awe, and another in the Gulf of Finland to protect his territory from the Swedes. We shall see how subsequently, and in due time, he conquered the Baltic from the Swedes and the Euxine from the Turks. He did not seem to have an ambition for indefinite territorial aggrandizement, but simply to extend his empire to these seas for the purpose of having a free egress and ingress to it by water. He could not Europeanize his empire without seaports, for unless Russia had these, she would remain a barbarous country, a vast Valachia or Mordavia. The expediency and the necessity of these ports were most obvious. But how is he to get them? Only by war. Aggressive war he would seize what he wanted since he could attain his end in no other way now i do not propose to whitewash this enlightened but unscrupulous robber on no recognized principles of morality can he be defended any more than can louis the fourteenth for the invasion of flanders or frederick the second for the seizure of silesia he first resolved to seize azof the main port on the little sea of that name which opens out into the black sea and which belonged to the turks It was undoubted robbery, but its possession would be an immense advantage to Russia. Of course, that seizure could not be justified either by the laws of God or the laws of nations. Thou shalt not steal is an eternally binding law for nations and for individuals. Peter knew that he had no right to this important city, but at the same time he knew that its possession would benefit Russia. So we are compelled to view this monarch as a robber, taking what was not his as Ahab seized Nahaboth's vineyard but taking it for the benefit of his country, which Ahab did not. He knew it was a political crime, but a crime to advance the civilization of his empire. The only great idea of his life was the welfare of his country by any means. For his country, he would sacrifice his character and public morality. Some might call this an exalted patriotism. I call it unmitigated Jesuitism, which seems to have been the creed of politicians and even of statesmen for the last 300 years. All that Peter thought of was the end, He cared nothing for the means. I wonder why Carlyle or Fraude has not bolstered up and defended this great Hyperbean giant for doing evil that good may come. Cosistry is in their line, the defense of scoundrels seems to be their vocation. Well then, bear in mind that Peter, feeling that he must have Azov for the good of Russia, irrespective of right or wrong, went straight forward to his end. Of course he knew he must have a fight with Turkey to gain this prize, and he prepared for such a fight. Turkey was not then what it is now, ripe fruit to be gobbled up by Russia when the rest of Europe permits it. But Turkey was then a great power. At that very time, 200,000 Turks were besieging Vienna, which would have fallen but for John Sobieski. But obstacles were nothing to Peter, they were simply things to be surmounted at any sacrifice of time or money or men. So with the ships he had built, he sailed down the River Don and attacked Azov. He was foiled, not beaten. He never seemed to know when he was beaten, and he never seemed to care. That hard iron man marched to his object like a destiny. What he had to do was to take Azov against an army of Turks. So, having failed in the first campaign, through the treachery of one Jacobs who had been employed in the artillery, he tried it again the next year and succeeded, his army being commanded by General Gordon, a Scotchman, while he himself served only as ensign or lieutenant. This port was the key of Pallas Meotis, and opened to him the Black Sea, on which he resolved to establish a navy. He had now an army modeled after the European fashion, according to the suggestions of Lafort, whose regiment became the model of other regiments. 5,000 men were trained and commanded by General Gordon. Lafort raised another corps of 12,000 from Streltsy, chiefly. These were the forces, in conjunction with the navy, with which he reduced Azov. He now returns to Moscow and receives the congratulations of the boyars, or nobles, that class who owned the landed property of Russia and cultivated it by serfs. He made heavy contributions on these nobles, and also on the clergy, for it takes money to carry on a war, and money he must have somehow. These forced contributions and the changes which were made in the army were not beheld with complacency. The Old Guard, the Streltsy, were particularly disgusted. The various innovations were very unpopular, especially those made in reference to the dress of the new soldiers. The result of all these innovations and discontents was a conspiracy to take his life, which, however, was seasonably detected and severely punished. An extraordinary purpose now seized the mind of the Tsar, which was to travel in the various countries of Europe and learn something more especially about shipbuilding on which his heart was set. He also wished to study laws, institutions, sciences, and arts, and in order to study them effectually, he resolved to travel incognito. Hitherto, he had not been represented in the European courts, so he appointed an embassy of extraordinary magnificence to proceed in the first instance to Holland, then the foremost mercantile state of Europe. The retinue consisted of four secretaries, at the head of whom was Lafort, 12 nobles, 50 guards, and other persons altogether to the number of 200 as they traveled through prussia they were received with great distinction and the whole journey seems to have been a bacchanalian progress there were nothing lout, fêtes and banquets to his honor and the russians proved to have great capacity for drinking at konigsberg he left his semi-barbaric embassy to the revels and proceeded rapidly and privately to holland hired a small room kitchened and garret for lodgings, and established himself as journeyman carpenter, with a resolute determination to learn the trade of a ship carpenter. He dressed like a common carpenter and lived like one with great simplicity. When he was not at work in the dockyard with his broad axe, he amused himself by sailing a yacht, dressed like a Dutch skipper, with a red jacket and white trousers. He was a marked personage even had it not been known that he was the Tsar. A tall, robust active man of 25 with a fierce look and curling brown locks free from all restraint seeing but little of the ambassadors who had followed him and passing his time with shipbuilders and merchants and adhering rigidly to all the regulations of the dockyards he spent nine months in this way at hard labor and at the end of that time had mastered the art of shipbuilding in all its details had acquired the dutch language and had seen what was worth seeing of amsterdam showing an unbounded curiosity and indefatigable zeal, frequenting the markets and the shops, attending lectures in anatomy and surgery, learning even how to draw teeth, visiting museums and manufactories, holding intercourse with learned men, and making considerable proficiency in civil engineering and the science of fortification. Nothing escaped his anger inquiries. dat was his perpetual exclamation. He devoured every morsel of knowledge with unexampled veracity. Never was seen a man on this earth with a more devouring appetite for knowledge of every kind, storing up in his mind everything he saw with a view of introducing improvements into Russia. To see this barbaric emperor thus going to school and working with his own hands, insensible to heat and cold and weariness, with the single aim of benefiting his countrymen when he should return, is to me one of the most wonderful sights of history. His chosen companion in these labors and visits and pleasures was also one of the most remarkable men of his age. His name was Menshikov, originally a seller of pies in the street of Moscow, who attracted, by his beauty and brightness, the attention of General Lafort, and was made a page in his household, and was as such made known to the czar who took a fancy to him and soon detected his great talents, so that he rose as rapidly as Joseph did in the court of Pharaoh and became General-Governor-Prince-Regent with almost autocratic power. The whole subsequent reign of Peter and of his successor became identified with Prince Menschnikoff, who was Prime Minister and Grand Vizier, and who forwarded all the schemes of his master with consummate ability. After leaving Holland, Peter accepted an invitation of William III to visit England, and thither he went with his embassy and royal ships, yet still affecting to travel as a private gentleman. He would accept no honors, no public receptions, no state banquets. He came to England not to receive honors, but to add to his knowledge, and he wished to remain unfettered in his sightseeing. In England, the same insatiable curiosity marked him as in Holland. He visits the dockyards and goes to the theatre and the opera and holds interviews with Quakers and attends their meetings as well as the churches of the establishment the country houses of nobles with their parks and gardens and hedges filled him with admiration he was also greatly struck with Greenwich Hospital which looked to him like a royal palace as it was originally and he greatly wondered that the old seedy and frowsy pensioners should be lodged so magnificently the courts of Westminster surprised him. Why, said he, in reference to the legal gentleman in wigs and gowns, I have but two lawyers in my dominions, and one of them I mean to hang as soon as I return. But while he visited everything, generally in a quiet way, avoiding display and publicity, he was most interested in mechanical inventions and the dockyards and mock naval combats. It would seem that his private life was simple, although he is accused of eating voraciously and of drinking great quantities of brandy and sack. If this be true, he certainly reformed his habits and learned to govern himself, for he was very temperate in his latter days. Men who are very active and perform Herculean labors do not generally belong to the class of gluttons or drunkards. I have read of but a few great generals like Caesar or Charlemagne or William the Third, or Gustavus Adolphus or Marlborough or Cromwell or Turenne or Wellington or Napoleon who were not temperate in their habits. After leaving England, the Tsar repaired to Vienna via Holland, sending to Russia 500 persons whom he took in his employ, Navy captains, pilots, surgeons, gunners, boat builders, blacksmiths, various other mechanics, having an eye to the industrial development of his country, which was certainly better than driving out of his kingdom 400,000 honest people as Louis Fourteenth did because they were Protestants. But Peter did not tarry long in Vienna whose military establishments he came to study, being compelled to return hastily to Moscow to suppress a rebellion. He returned a much wiser man. I doubt if any person, ever, was more improved than he by his travels. What an example to tourists in these times! All traveling, except explorations, is a dissipation and waste of time unless self-improvement is the main object. Pleasure-seeking is the greatest vanity on this earth, for he who seeks pleasure never finds it, but it comes when it is a minor consideration. The apprenticeship of Peter is now completed, and he enters more seriously upon those great labors which have given him an immortality. I am compelled to be brief in stating them. The first thing he did on his return was finally to crush the streltsi who fomented treasons and were hostile to reform. He had wisely left General Gordon at Moscow with 6,000 soldiers, disciplined after the European fashion. In abolishing the turbulent and prejudicial Streltsy, he is accused of great cruelties. He summarily executed or imprisoned some 4,000 of them caught in acts of treason and rebellion, and drafted the rest into distant regiments. He may have been unnecessarily cruel, as critics have accused Oliver Cromwell of being in his treatment of the Irish. But, cruel or not, he got rid of troops he could not trust and organized soldiers whom he could, for he must have tools to work with if he would do his work. I neither praise nor condemn his mode of working. I seek to show how he performed his task. After disbanding rebellious soldiers, he sought to make his army more efficient by changing the dress of the entire army. He did away with the long coat reaching to the heels, something like that which ladies wear in rainy days, and the drawers not unlike petticoats. And the long bushy beards. He found more difficulty in making this reform than in taking Azov, although aided by Menshikov, his favorite fellow traveler and prime minister. He was not content with cutting off the beards of soldiers and shortening their coats. He wished to make private citizens do the same. But the uproar and discontent were so great that he was obliged to compromise on the matter and allowed the citizens to wear their beard and robes on condition of a heavy tax graded on ability to pay it. The only class he exempted from the tax were the clergy and the serfs. End of section 18